Welcome to the Grace City Church Podcast, where we believe that Jesus died to reconcile us to God, to others, and to make us reconcilers. We're so glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're watching, God is doing transforming work in you through this message. The guests out there, my name is Will Plunk, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm looking forward just to continuing our series on the church, looking at 1 Peter 2. Today, uh, if you hopefully got a chance to get one of our resource cards coming in, uh, you got a little place to take notes, which we encourage. And again, we'll have these every week with different resources we hope you can keep. Little spot in the back where you can uh, bind them together. And if you collect them all and turn them in at the end, there'll be a prize. Just kidding. Um, but uh, we are excited for, for this series and hope, hope it's doing good work in, in the life of our church. Um, if you grew up in the church, this might be familiar to you. And if not, no worries, um, uh, because you weren't missing much. But for those of you who remember this illustration, we're talking about the church as a building today, right? So here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors and... Okay, some of y'all, you know what I'm saying? Some of y'all got it, some of y'all didn't. But uh, this, right? What is this little, like, kids little thing? What is that even called? I don't know. Display. Kids thing. What, what, what's the purpose of that? To say, is the church primarily a building? No, it's people, right? Like, that's what, that's what it's saying. And in some ways, every time you come to Grace City Church, for those of you who come, implicitly, we preach the message that the church is not uh, with stained glass windows and a huge steeple because you come into uh, an elementary school where it's really cold and uh, sometimes the chairs don't work, right? So, like, implicitly... We preach that, but what we get a chance to actually see as we continue our series and look at 1 Peter chapter 2 is that the church is a building. The church is a building. It's, it, it is not a man-made building and that it's made by men, but it is a man-made building and that it's made of men and women and the young and old and all different people in which God is assembling to create a structure. And so I'm excited just to get a chance to talk about this and uh, hopefully just to see its implications on our life. Let's pray, and then we'll look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Father, we come before you. We come before you. And I, I can't get that, that line of that song out of my head, that darkness trembles at your voice. That the places in our heart right now that are dark or dull or callous or bitter, that when your voice enters in, it trembles and can go away. <laughs> Only your voice can do such a thing. And so, Jesus, we do pray we could hear from you this morning. I pray that regardless of how we enter in this morning, the places that we're in, I'm very aware of the transition in some of our lives and the joys, new life expectation or loss or sickness or those even struggling with COVID, that there's just so many variables as your people gather. So many that it truly is impossible for one person to speak to. But that's why we're thankful that we have a God whose voice is alive and active through your word and meets us where we are and calls us out of darkness into your wonderful light, like it says in our text this morning. And I pray you would. I pray you would speak to the dark places of us and call us to light. 
I pray that we could see that your light, you'd shine bright on us. And I pray you would give us a new vision, a fresh vision for the church, your bride, your body, your building. I pray you would give us a fresh vision for this. And it could be your vision, and we could rejoice in that. All God's kids said, amen. All right, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, as you come to him, the living stone, who's him? It's Jesus. Who is he? The living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God. Jesus was rejected by people. We know this because Jesus was put up on the cross and was abandoned and betrayed and ultimately killed. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God. God had an intent for him, and he was precious to the Father. And you also like living stones, are being built. Everybody say built. Into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This text this morning deals with a tension that I believe has caused a lot of problems historically in the church, and it's this. Here's a question to you. Is the church primarily an organization or an organism? Is it primarily an organization or an organism? Is it structured and ordered and have systems, or is it fluid and free and organic? I'm curious at how you'd answer the question. I think many of us might answer it based more on our personality type. So let me just, just let me ask your personality type, right? Like I'm curious at who we got in the room. If you're more of like a structured, order, system kind of human being, or more like free. For, where, my, where my ordered system People, all right, okay, a number of you. Now, other here, we're my free-flowing, I love the word organic. You got, you raise your hand like this, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's who you are, right? Like, so we got different dispositions. Uh, no middle charity, I'm sorry, you have to pick one, it's binary. Um, but you, you, got one, you got one or the other, maybe, I'm sure there is a hybrid, I'm sorry, but putting you in categories. And um, that, I think that, that is the question, right? To go, okay, like, how do I lean? But what does the scripture say about what the church actually is? Is it more organism, free, flow, or is it more organization, structured, ordered system? Look at our text today. Look at what it says about Jesus. Who is Jesus in our text? He is a living stone. What is a stone? Structured. What is living, active, and organic? What is a stone used to build something? What is, what is something alive? It occupies the living space. It's, it's movable. It's fluid. And then what does it say about us? We, too, also, are like living stones. He is the living stone. That's why it's capitalized. But we, in his image, are living stones. And what is he doing with us as living stones? Building us. We are being built into a spiritual house. Literally, he is taking us individually as living stones and assembling us together to form a spiritual house or temple for the Lord. You know this? That literally he is grabbing you and putting you into something and putting us into something as his people to construct something. But then he mixes metaphors. Look, we are being built into a spiritual house. But then what does it say? To be a holy priesthood. So, so are we the house or the priests who occupy the house? Yes, that's my favorite 
Either or, if you, if you around in our church, it's my favorite one, either or. Like, are we, the, are we the, the structure or are we the people in the structure? Yes. Is the church more an organization or an organism? Yes. Yes. You know, if I was a Baptist preacher, I would say, the church is an organic organization or an organized organism. There we go, right? Like, you see that O's? Come on, where my Baptist at? You know what I'm saying? An organized organism or organic organization. I literally have to think about that pretty deeply to make sure I even get it right. I'm going to be real. But it's this both and living stones. Literally, we're being built into a spiritual house, a spiritual house. So there's structure, but it's spiritual in nature too. And we're living stones. We're not dead stones. Let me, let me read you this quote from a commentator talking about this passage. It says this. this is, I think this is powerful. Each believer is part of a spiritual structure which is not a dead building, but a living edifice made up of people. We get formed into, yes, an organization, but it's not a dead organization. It's not. Like, like, if you think about Jesus being the living stone, right, we don't chiefly believe in doctrines, precepts, or principles. We believe in a person, and his name's Jesus. But Jesus is this living stone assembling us together to make us into a structure, literally like an organization. So another quote I think is helpful kind of on this idea of us being built together is from Charles Spurgeon. I'm going to show it to you. Uh, uh, this quote, and he in general, like, if he could grow in, he's got a lot of truth, but if he could grow into anything, it's a little bit of grace. So he's going to come a little hard in this quote, but I think it's helpful to read nevertheless. says this, I know there are some who say, well, I've given myself to the Lord, but I don't intend to give myself to any church. I say, now why not? And they answer, because I can be just as good a Christian without it. I say, are you quite clear about that? You can, be a, as, you can be as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as by being obedient. There's a brick. What is a brick made for? It's made to build a house. It is of no use for that brick to tell you that it's just as good a brick while it's kicking about on the ground by itself as it would be as if it was part of a house. Actually, it's a good-for-nothing brick. You see, Charles... So, you Rolling Stone Christians, I don't believe that you're answering the purpose for which Christ saved you. You're living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live, and you are much to blame for the injury you do. Literally, we injure ourselves and others when we are not put into what God intends us to be put into. Literally, we're, we're living stones. The text says we are living stones that he is building present and actively us into a spiritual house. What's this mean? It means you're a brick, and God's trying to get you, put some mortar on you, and slap you up in a house and make you stick to a structure. That's God's intent. You can look at that, think about that illustration of a brick and stones, right? I don't know about you, but I, I think most of us, we don't see a house and go, I mean, that's, that's a pretty house, but... Have you seen that brick? The bottom left, have you seen it? It's beautiful. You know what I'm saying? Like most of us, we don't, we don't even really 
acknowledge that they're bricks. We just call it a house. Get this. This is going to be important for later. We recognize when it's constructed into a house, the bricks' corporate or collective identity before their individual identity. We more quickly say that is a house before we were to say that's a bunch of bricks. And what we're going to see in our text today is this is to be true for the people of God as well. That the world is supposed to look at us and go, here's a spiritual house to God. Here is the church of God. Here are the people of God. Here are the chosen one. Here's a holy nation. Here's a royal priesthood. Here are these people. God is assembled together before he actually goes, look at all these individual Christians. Our corporate identity is incredibly important in the scriptures and for God. But look at our text. The big thing, though, is this idea, and you heard it in the Spurgeon quote, is that God is literally taking us and assembling us into something. Like, he's got a purpose for your life, but it's bigger than your life. His purpose for you is bigger than you. He's building a spiritual house with you. He literally intends to join us together to become something beautiful for him. But if you notice, like, other organizations, they assemble and, and they have intention, right? They have purpose. They have a mission statement, right? Lots, lots of different mission statements for different things. I was joking at Krauss. His, his business is, like, change the world. I'm like, how are you going to change the world? Like, they got, they got mission statements, right? Like, you got vision statements. You got purpose statements of why they exist, and that's incredibly important. And for most organizations, at the end of the day, they might have a purpose statement, but the bottom line is what? You make a buck. Profit. We actually have the purpose statement here for why we are assembled. We become the spiritual house, which is structured to be, mixes metaphors, a priesthood in which we can offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God? Why do we order as the people of God? Why do we assemble? Why would we be joined together? Why would we identify as a collective? In order that we can offer sacrifices to God that are acceptable. We talked about in, in Romans chapter 12, what does a sacrifice mean? Well, really, it's, it's talking about worship. This is, this is the bottom line of the institution of the church, the structure of the church. This is the end for which we order, and it is to worship God. Everything else is a means. That is the end. Filling the pews is not the end. Feeding the hungry is not the end. Making a, bu making a buck is not the end. The end is to worship God. It's that we would assemble to be priests who are offering sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to him. That's why we get together. That's why we order and organize. And a couple things, though, I think that matter here in this idea as we kind of come together and assemble is, is, is one is this. This is a spiritual house he's building. He's building a spiritual structure. So he's putting spiritual order on things. Why do I say that? Here's why I say that. It's because sometimes there's this, I think, misunderstanding that order is not spiritual, that structure is not spiritual. But here's what I want to tell you. You engineers, there's a place for you in the kingdom of God, all right? Like you structured planners, like you can be spiritual too. 
Like being spiritual doesn't mean you're like just, you know what I'm saying? Like, like sometimes we, like in some contexts, it's different in different places, but some contexts, spiritual means spontaneity. You know what I'm saying? Like it means freedom. And we go, the spirit was here, and it means that, that you didn't follow plans. I'm like, can the spirit be in plans? Spirit can be in plans. You're telling me we can't pray with the Holy Spirit? Ask him to work in order and structure something? We can absolutely do that. We can absolutely do that, and we are, we are to. Literally, he gave the gift of leadership and the gift of administration to order the church so that it would become something unique for God. A couple of verses I'll show you um, that I think speak to this, and these are the verses we don't always hoop and holler about, but they're important ones. You know, one of the verses we like to quote a lot, thinking about being spiritual too, is, um, hey, when you, this is Jesus speaking to the or to his disciples talking about they'll be persecuted. And he goes, when you go before courts, don't worry about what to say. Because the Holy Spirit's going to give you words. And you know what some pastors have done with that? I don't need to prep a sermon then. You know what I'm saying? I can just get up here and be spiritual. But I'm like, okay, one, is that descriptive or prescriptive? Was he referring specifically to disciples? And it's like, okay, maybe he's saying do that when you get brought before the court because someone's trying to persecute you for Jesus. Then you can try, you know. But there's verses like this and in 1 Peter where it says what? Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Literally, it's like prepare so much, prepare so much that when it's a time for you to speak, you can speak. Or when you're not even expecting it, you can still speak because you've prepared so much. That's kind of like David when he fights Goliath. He's like, I haven't been fighting giants, but you know who I have been fighting? Lions and bears and wolves. Like that's literally what he says. He's like, I'm pre- God's been preparing me for this. Correct, rebuke, and courage with great patience and careful instruction. First Peter also says, um, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. He's like, and then it, that, the, to be ready means to prepare. Another verse. So what happened in the early church, this is kind of the organism, organization piece, uh, and this happens today, is people will go and, and proclaim the good news about Jesus into a new place that had no structure, no order, no church. And that stage of the church is very organic and is supposed to be, I think. So it comes and it is like that, but then over time, things do get structured. And so Paul even says, this is a pastoral epistle written to another pastor, whom to Titus, who he left in Crete, and look at the reason why, was that you might put in order, everybody say in order, what was left unfinished. And appoint elders in every town as I direct you. Literally, he says, yeah, I preach the gospel, there's Christians now, and now I'm leaving you there to establish the church, to put leaders in it and to order things that are left unfinished. We're supposed to bring order. Another verse, 1 Corinthians. Um, it's a lot of disorder up in this church, if you read this, this letter. And so Paul's reminding them a lot of times about order. One verse says, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Literally, you should order things in the congregations. In the next verse in 1 Corinthians 14, this is a verse that our Presbyterian brothers and sisters love. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. You know what I'm saying? This isn't the verse that we're like, hallelujah, like we don't sing this verse. Everything should be done fitting and orderly, you know? 
Like, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is order. You know what I'm like, like, that's not what we usually sing and think about. But here's what I'm saying is, is order is a good thing. This is, this, these are gifts God has given to his people to come and assemble and establish things for the house to be built and for structures to even be put into play. And as you, as you look at the scriptures, there are ways in which God tells us to do things at different times, almost like systems and orders as we establish ourselves. Back to our text. Look at verse, actually look at verse 6. So he goes, we're building a spiritual house, and to be a priesthood, to worship in that house. But then he kind of goes back to the house illustration, but talking specifically about the cornerstone. Verse 6, for in scripture it says, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, in reference to Jesus, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. This is, this is beautiful. So we're the spiritual house. He's a living stone. And now as we're hearing, okay, we're, we're to order and assemble in some ways and become structured in some ways, he goes, remember, though, that there's this one stone. It's the cornerstone. His name's Jesus. And we should build on the cornerstone. Like everything should be structured on him. Matthew 7, same kind of thing. We got to build it on the, the firm foundation of Jesus. That's the only way we're going to, that's the only way we're not going to be tossed and put to, like, tossed all around. It's like we got to build on him, the cornerstone. Well, what is a cornerstone? Some of you grew up in church, you sang that song about a cornerstone, and for many of us, we're like, I guess it's a stone in the corner. And uh, that's right. I mean, for the most part, that is true. And what it is, is typically speaking, it would be the first stone laid through which all the other stones would have their direction. But not only that, when Jesus is using this, or when this is used in scriptures, it's referring to the stone that is the weight-bearing stone, the load-bearing stone. Literally, it's supposed to, to bear the weight of the rest of the structure. And for us, as we think about our life, Jesus is the only one who can bear the weight of our whole life. Like at the end of the day, we can try to build on other stuff, but he is the only one that can bear the weight of our life. He's the only one who can bear the weight of your ambition, your desire, your passion, your desire to connect. He is the only one who can do it. And this is an exhortation for us to know if we build on him, we won't put, be put to shame. But again, usually we, we read that and we're thinking chiefly about our own individual life. But if we look at the context of this passage, it's not chiefly referring to our individual life being built on the cornerstone. It's our collective life. It's the community's life. It's saying our whole community can be built on Jesus as the cornerstone or capstone. And that community won't be put to shame. You're going to see it more later in the text as well in the fact that we're living stones being assembled on the living stone, which is Jesus. Here's what's beautiful about, about this. It means that all of our life and all of our community gets to be built on a, on a stone that will never be put to shame. I, um, <clears throat> I went to New York City a few, four years ago, been, only been one time. And I'm a South Carolina boy, so this might make you think less of me, but I went to New York City and I literally was just like, the, the buildings are so big, right? Like, like, I was just like, I've seen movies, but they're huge. I'm like, I get why Spider-Man would want to hang out here, you know what I mean? Like, like, this is awesome. Like, they're huge. And you can't help but when you see these buildings there to go, wow, it is impressive 
that human beings could build such a great, like so many great structures. Like literally these things are huge. I'm like, I don't know how this can happen, but this is what has happened. Wow, you know? And as, as we were there, I know you're like, wow, you really are from South Carolina. Um, but as, you know, as we were there, we went and um, took a tour of the 9-11 memorial and also went to the museum. And just was remembering on that time period and, and what that was like from afar to, to hear about the tragedy, but to be connected because of our country and and. It was gut-wrenching even going to the museum, in part because of the way they had two parts where there were, um, you'd go into this room and there'd be audio recordings of people who were in the tower at the time and the, call, the phone calls they made. And if you've ever, it's worth going to, but it's gut-wrenching, so you got to be ready. you got to be ready. Because it was just, you know, they started the day thinking one thing and then everything change in a flash for them and it's incredibly sad but like they're in this building that you had to be like this is re- structured it's reliable nothing's going to happen and then all of a sudden that whole huge man-made structure is tumbling down and I couldn't help but think about that New York City as I think about this passage too and just thinking like the only structure which we can rely on that will never come tumbling down is Jesus. Like he is the only foundation that can truly bear the weight of our soul and our life and our community. Like everything else is gonna fall apart. Every, every human organization will fall apart. Every, every building will eventually fall apart. Every, every nation will eventually fall apart. Like, like, it doesn't say at the end of Revelation, then America will rise up. Like, maybe that's in the 28th chapter that I don't know about. But, like, every nation, every business will fall apart. Like, what happened to Blockbuster? You know what I'm saying? Like, it, we thought it was going to be here forever. Like, all that stuff will. But what this text is saying is that God has laid a stone in Zion. That's Jerusalem equivalent. Like, the new heavens and new earth, Jerusalem a chosen and precious stone. Remember, it was rejected by men earlier in the text, that living stone, but precious to God, this chosen cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Every other institution will fall apart except for the church. And the reason the church doesn't isn't because the church is great, it's because our cornerstone is. It's because Jesus is at our foundation. It's because we can trust him to even build our whole community upon. What do you mean when you say whole community? Here's what I mean. Like we can agree to do things in particular ways that the scriptures tell us to. Like we can commit to each other, I'm going to forgive you, even if I don't want to. Even if you're crazy and you sinned against me. Why? Because the scriptures tell me to. How many times am I supposed to forgive? What does Jesus say when he gets answered that, asked that question? 77 times? You're like, dang, that's a lot. Trying to say unlimited. We commit to the way we speak um, about one another without gossip or slander because the scriptures tell us to. So we have communities formed around that idea. Committing to, I think about in Acts 2 recently, like where the, the apostles devote themselves, or the, 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 the Christians devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Say so we're, we're committed to, this community is committed to, get this, come under the scriptures and trust them above our 
own wants and desires. Committed to fellowship. What does committed to fellowship mean? We're devoted to each other. We're devoted, like we, we literally are committed to one another is the idea. Like we're committing to, to each other and how we communicate. To not, to, like, like what, well, here's what I'm saying, like scriptures talk about not suing each other. It's like when, when you have been wronged by another Christian, do, you, do we first go, what can I do to get the most out of it? Or do I first go, let me read 1 Corinthians 6. Which says, because I'm going to judge angels one day, I shouldn't really sue my Christian brother or sister. Can there ever be a situation that's okay? I'm not even saying there could never be a situation where it's okay. I'm just saying we are a community that can trust the cornerstone so much that we can build our whole life upon his instruction. We can, we can have community norms around his instructions and commitments to each other and practices. It's beautiful. And if you read the Old Testament, you see all this structure, and a lot of it's good, and there's tons of Old Testament temple reference in our text today that will never be put to shame. One of those structures is, um, you can pull out your little resource card if you want, and we're also going to have a slide for you, is um, the process of church discipline. Church discipline is not um, one of those structures, again, that you go, yes, can't wait to talk about this. But it's one that's in the scriptures and that we do because we trust that the way Jesus says things is the way that's best for us. I encourage you because we're going to have to fly. Like, I took the last service. Last service went long. I was like, I really took you all to black church. So I'm trying to go a little bit quicker. I'm trying to go a little bit quicker this time. So I encourage you, though, to look, to look at Matthew 18 and, and 1 Corinthians 5, though, um, in another time. I really do encourage you to do that. Because you'll see this order there. Like, you should look at this and then look at the scripture and see the order. So we walk through it. So this is a process. You think about Izzy's story. Like, this is a process in some way of, of just reconciliation. And when somebody sins, what do you do? And, and this is church discipline. Oftentimes we think about church discipline. We think about the, just the organized church doing it. But what we're trying to see is, but you're a part, you're a living stone joined to this thing. So when we say church discipline, we mean how we do this. You included. And, you're, and all of us are an important part of this process if we pay attention. First, we ask the question, has our brother or sister sinned? That's a very important question. Because it's different than, is your brother or sister annoying? <laughs> those, those are two very different things. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Have they sinned? Then you go to the next step. If they're annoying, that's probably, I don't know, there's a, probably a different pathway. One of the scriptures have that outline. It says, number two, point out their fault between the two of you. Meaning you go directly to them and point out their fault. Then, if they don't listen, number three, include one or two other believers onto the or into the reconciliation process. This is incredibly important because what happens a lot of times is, is we have probably really five or ten people who know that this person sinned against us before that person even knows. Like, we've already told about six, seven, eight, nine people building up the courage to go do just what the scriptures say to start with. And I think that's really important for us to recognize because what that is, we say it's not, but what that is typically is it's gossip. We are typically gossiping. We don't, we, you know, none of you would say you're gossips. I wouldn't say that about myself. Like none of us say it, yet it happens all the time. It's just like this mysterious thing that somehow none of us sins to produce it, but it just happened. I'm kidding. We all do it. And it's important to recognize, like, okay, 
how do I, how do I approach this in a biblical, biblical manner? Where it says, go to them, then if they don't listen, then you start including one or two other believers in the process. These people serve as mediators and, and are helpful in the process. They can be good friends. You want somebody who is wise, somebody who would be a peacemaker in the process. This does not say it has to be an elder. Um, does it have to be a pastor? Nothing like that. It can be. I think you can do that there too, but it doesn't have to be. Really, you want a wise Christian brother or sister. Then, if they don't listen, then after the process, you take it to the elders. It says in the, that scripture, take it to the church. I very much believe that is the office bearers and leaders of the church. You take it to them. And then, if they don't listen, you do five, which is wrong on this card, but right there. And um, so you can mark it out if you have a pen, and it's you exclude them from the fellowship. What does that mean? That means that if someone is in unrepentant sin, what does that mean? That means they're in ongoing sin and unwilling to try to turn to Jesus. They're actively choosing their sin, even though their brothers and sisters are saying this is not right. Then you exclude from the fellowship. I'm a, we'll get to why that happens in the next part. General principles of discipline. So that process, here's the general principles. And I, this is what I think. I think the principles matter more than the process following the process explicitly. It's not like, okay, I can only have two people. You know, I think it's more just we follow this, these principles and it's that we keep the circle as small as possible for as long as possible. Because if your goal is truly reconciliation, you're not trying to get the news out unless get talk and consulting other people helps bring about reconciliation. Does that make sense? So we get, we get the news out only as it helps bring about reconciliation and you give someone multiple opportunities to change. So this doesn't mean some, whoever does the really bad thing, church disciplined, Instead, it's when someone is choosing to continue to turn against God over and over again, and people are coming, giving them multiple opportunities to change, and they're still, they're still unwilling. The goal of church discipline, the goal of church discipline is restoration. This is the goal. It's restoration. You see a couple of ways that manifests itself. Look at 1 Corinthians 5. You can see them more. One is the purity of the church. In that text, it talks about yeast getting into dough. And how, what happens is, is if you allow unrepentant sin to continue to exist in a fellowship, it breeds, it multiplies, and it gets on all of us, and then we're more prone to do it. And it turns out, it says in Colossians 2, we're capturable. So we are influenceable. We all are. And part of the reason is to make sure that doesn't happen. That's why we would exclude from the fellowship. Another is to vindicate the honor of Jesus. So Jesus hangs out with imperfect people because he hangs out with us. However, we are imperfect people who are being perfected. What does that mean? Does it mean we're more perfect than our non-Christian brothers and, sisters, brothers and sisters necessarily? But it does mean that we are actively choosing and trying to follow Christ. And if we are saying, I won't, really, and we're saying, I'm going to do what I want to do, even though Jesus is saying this, and I see this in the word, really what we're saying is, we're the Lord of our life, not Jesus. That make sense? We're saying, I'm going to do things my way, not his way. And that's a really scary place to be in. And that's why the, the whole goal is the benefit of the offender. Because the whole goal of church discipline, what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, is that literally the exclusion from the fellowship is to hand them over to Satan in hopes, this is what the scripture says, in hopes that their soul would be saved on the last day. It's their restoration is the goal. So it is the hard thing to do to exclude, but the hope is that through the exclusion, 
feeling not a part of the camp, they would realize, I'm here, and the people of God are here. Maybe something is off. And maybe me realizing something off will get me to turn and come back home. And sometimes when we're saying we can kind of have, what's it, have our cake and eat it too, we're living in a false reality. And the exclusion helps us understand the stark truth of our situation. But that's why it exists. So again, why would we practice and do such a thing? Well, because the scriptures tell us to and because he's the cornerstone that's worth building our whole life on. Worth building our whole life on. Back to our text. You just see this. Because <clears throat> there's a bunch of different practices in the scriptures that are not attractive. But it turns out it's kind of supposed to be that way. It says, now to you who believe this stone is precious, just like God's salt is precious, this cornerstone, Jesus, is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is what they were destined for. Do we know that the same stone that is the cornerstone is also the stumbling stone? The same Jesus who is our cornerstone if we're in Christ is a stumbling stone for those who are not in Christ. And it turns out that it is not our job to keep people from stumbling over Jesus. We should not let people stumble over the mispractices of the church, but it is not our job to water down the message of Jesus so that they don't stumble over him. It literally says in this text, some were destined to stumble over him. He is literally the cornerstone for some and the stumbling stone for others. That this is the person of Jesus. His message will always be divisive to some. He's like a watershed. What it says in Luke, we said in our Advent series, he causes the rise and fall of many in Israel. He says, I've come to bring a sword that's literally going to divide like, like daughter-in-law from mother-in-law, father from son. And what it, what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jesus is, what it, is where it all matters, what it all comes down to. And we can't, we can't misshape Jesus for people to try to get him because people aren't going to have the real him. They're going to have an idol. We got to let people get the real him, the true him in his entirety. All of what he says about everything he says. And we, as his children, in his image, he's the living stone. We're living stones. We preach that message of Christ. And it turns out we, like him, for some are a message of life, and for others are a message of death. Look at this verse in 2 Corinthians. We, the church, are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ. This is beautiful. To God, we are the pleasing aroma of Christ. That's how he sees us. Among those being saved and those being perish, those perishing. So when we're in Christ, we're his aroma, going out into the world smelling like Jesus smelled. And so what does that mean? To one, we are the aroma that brings death, and to the other, an aroma that brings life. If we truly are built on the cornerstone, do you know that our message and our aroma will bring death to some? Like literally, some people won't 
like how you smell. They won't like what you stand for. They won't like the message of Jesus. They won't like the message of Jesus. They'll feel like it's intolerant or bigoted. And if we build our we build our our life and our and our, our whole life on this cornerstone, the one the one stone where where we will not be put to shame. The truth is, like literally, there are going to be people in this world who don't like it and who stumble over it. Like literally, when we build our our, our community and we we preach things just about sin and wrath, some people won't like that. That we are sinners, dead in our transgressions and sins. Some people won't like that at all and won't be able to go through the process of knowing that, but then, by his grace, we are made new and freed. But some won't like it. You think about we just preach a biblical sexual ethic. But the scriptures are clear about that God does teach about sexuality a lot of different things that are beautiful. But he does teach very explicitly that marriage is for a man and a woman. That message is not going to be liked. Like less and less, five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, it's not going to be liked. But are we willing to preach it? Now, how do we preach it? Now, it's gonna be, you even kind of see it later in our text today. Now, we, we got to be willing to stand up for what Jesus says, what the message says. Our cornerstone is, doesn't mean we're bigoted. doesn't mean we're jerks. It actually means we, we preach the truth, but we don't hinder from our, by our behavior. And that's what's happened too much in the church, I would say, is our behavior hasn't been in line with Jesus. But we still got to stand up for the message. We had, a, we had a meeting last week with a ministry that's doing uh, work at the border, Christian ministry, Jesus at the border. I'm like, when you really start preaching what the Bible be saying about the foreigner and the orphan and the widow, or did you just take the foreigner? Like, I don't, some, some of our American tendencies don't like that. We do not like that. Like, should I identify more as an American or under this holy nation we're about to read about? As a Christian. Well, when Jesus is our primary allegiance, that changes things. But we have to be willing. And let me just make an exhortation to you. Let us, let us, let us together become a building built to glorify God. Built on his message. Not ashamed, I think about, it's um, Romans. Not ashamed of the gospel, knowing it's the power of God. But here's another, here's another thing. I think for many of us, like we, one of the reasons we won't be attached to this building is because we do like fluidity. And when we're fluid and we're not attached to something, people don't really know where we stand about stuff. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Like when you're not attached to anything, people don't really know. But when you're attached to it, people are like, oh, you go to that church? They believe this. You're like, dang it. Now they know. You know? <laughs> now they know what I think. But the Bible doesn't say that's a bad thing. We are to be built and constructed as a house. Literally, go, go to um, verse 10 through 12, or 9 and 10, that's where we are. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Literally, we are supposed to be a separate nation within a nation. You know that? Like, we are supposed to be this Christian nation, and I'm not talking about America, but we are this Christian nation, the church, within the United States. And there's supposed to be something alien about us. 
Almost like if you went to New York City and you saw all these man-made structures, you're like, oh, men made these. And then you see this, this like weirdly shaped different thing that's shooting out of the ground. And you're like, where did that come from? And it's just this foreign alien structure. We're supposed to be this foreign alien structure that commits to each other uniquely and differently because of who we are in Christ. Where people are like, that's a weird community. Or that's a different community. Or a good one. If we're the aroma of Christ to some, like it says in Matthew 5, that's a city on a hill. That's special. But the way we are that, family, is not by our individuality, but by our collective identity. Look at this text again at 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. A lot of times we hear that and we think, I do this all the time. I'll read a passage like that and I'll think this. I am a chosen person. I am a royal priest. I am, you know, part of a, you know, I, I individually am holy. I am God's special possession. And we think about all these individual things. That's not what this text is saying chiefly. It's saying we. It's saying our corporate identity, our corporate purpose. We are a chosen people. Literally, that's the word genos, where we get race from. A royal priesthood, where we get the, the, the doctrine, the priesthood of all believers. No longer is the priesthood just reserved for some, but it's for all of us. A holy nation, where we get the word ethnos, ethnicity. Like, like we are being formed into something special that's corporate. And that is how we are to be a witness to this world. It's through our jointness. Literally, the world's supposed to look at us and not go, there's a bunch of bricks but there's a house. There's a house. We are not a bunch of individual Christians who know the same God. We are a family with the same dad. I've been reading this book called um, The Misreading of the Scriptures from an Individualistic Lens. It's been crazy helpful. And his point is just that the, the human authors, not the, the human authors who wrote the Scriptures, that they are all writing from a collectivistic culture. And so we often miss how collective these implications are for us in the scriptures. For example, again, like English, we don't have a plural you. If we got the South Carolina tradition, it would be, but y'all are chosen people. You know what I'm saying? Like we give some of that. And one of the things he says in the book, is he, he references um, uh, Piglet from Winnie the Pooh. And he says, he quotes Piglet, and Piglet supposedly says, um, what makes me different is what makes me me. And his point is, in an individualistic culture, we don't even realize how odd that statement is. But for a collectivist culture, they go, what? It's what makes us we is what makes me me. Like my identity is attached to the corporate thing. And, and, and what I believe Here's what I'm saying. What I believe is we way under-identify with our collective identity as Christians in America. We way under-identify with the fact that we are one together. We are united together. We have so many Lone Ranger Christians, which doesn't even make sense in the scriptures. Jesus is like, no, we're together. We're family. We're united. Well, what does that mean? It means you're not trying to reach your neighbor. We are trying to reach your neighbor. It doesn't mean you're carrying your sin alone anymore. We are carrying it with you. Or even your dysfunction. We are carrying it. It doesn't mean you're fighting for your purity by yourself. We are fighting for it. We are fighting for you to be known. Like, 
all this stuff, we start to literally, what it says in Galatians 6, carry each other's burdens and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. We start to become interdependent knowing that now we are, this, we are a brick that has been stuck into a building. We've been stuck into a building. So that we can do what? Declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. God has designed this church thing, which is a building, to make his declaration of salvation louder. That we together would come. This doesn't say you, you but y'all, we would come and we would declare together. Like, that's one of the reasons why singing matters. It's literally, we're just saying, we, all, like, literally, people, like, if, if somebody, and we have people in all different places, but a non-Christian walks in this space, right? You might not be a Christian. It's not that our message is supposed to be incredibly winsome to the non-Christian. Instead, someone who's not a Christian is supposed to walk in and be like, dang, all these people believe this. All these people have been called out of darkness into light. All these people have been transformed. Jesus has done an amazing work in so many lives. I could be a part of this. I could have purpose that's greater than me and be joined into this structure in a collective identity declaring the praise of him who's called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now we are a people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Do you know that Jesus Christ has bled out to put his blood on us so that we could be his family? We could be his building. We could be joined together, interconnected, known in a new way, caring for each other in a new way, organizing in a new way, structuring in a new way, all for the purpose of declaring his glory. Band, you can come back up. I'll hit you with these last two verses. I'm sorry, I still did take y'all to black church. <laughs> Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Look at, listen to this. I think it's really powerful. Again, this is what we do collectively. Live such good lives among pagans or non-believers that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. So our community is supposed to be, the church community, isn't supposed to go to like monastic flight. Like we're not supposed to run off and really go to an island. We're supposed to set up this church thing in Charleston, in a school, like where we're together. We're supposed to go in twos to our workplaces. Like if you have Christians at your workplace, you'd be like, it don't matter if you go to Grace City Church or not. Hey, let's team up. We're doing something here now. I got brothers and sisters up in this workplace. Don't matter if they at Grace City or not. You got neighbors who are Christians. You're like, all right, this, this is what we are doing together now. Now, we are effective together. And so what happens? Well, the message might be divisive, but our behavior is actually supposed to not be. Look at it. They see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. So they might go, I hate that message. But dang, they nice people. Like, their view on sexuality, Yet they still keep loving me, even though I'm married to a man. Or I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like, they still keep up being up in my life. They keep serving. 
They have these beliefs, yeah, that I don't always see eye to eye with, but their behavior. You know, it's because we do huddle, and this, this church service is like a huddle, but we go out, but we go out not individually, we go out still collectively. But you know, for you football fans, you don't go to a football game to watch 11 grown men huddle, do you? If all we do, if, if all we do together is huddle, there is a deep problem. But what's happening in the American church is we huddle and then we go out individually. Instead of huddling and then going out together. And that's what we're supposed to do. You ain't supposed to be doing nothing by yourself. We're foreigners and exiles. We're foreigners and exiles in this world. But we together are. And the only way we endure, the only way we get out of this thing, is if we lock arms, family, and realize that we are brick and God's building a huge house out of all of us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come before you thankful that you are a good God, thankful that you are the God who called us out of darkness and into your wonderful light. You are the God where darkness trembles at your voice. You are the God whom right now can show us how beautiful our collective identity is, that we are a chosen people. Everybody here in Christ is chosen. A royal priesthood, literally, no longer do we need a mediator to mediate between us and God because God is the mediator in Jesus. We can all know you together a holy nation set apart separate your special possession you would call your church special even though many of us don't feel it because we haven't lived it nevertheless you call us special I just pray Jesus there would be a renewed sense in our church family of our collective identity and that we are the church and we would start to become this beautiful city on a hill that is all for you, praising you, worshiping you, and built on you as our cornerstone. Pray that in the wonderful, mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace City Church Podcast. Whether this is your first time with us or you find the Lord moving you to engage differently or just learn more about who we are, we encourage you to find us at our website at www.thegracecity.com to explore all of the ways that you can give, connect, and engage. Thank you again for being with us. Now go live as image bearers of the King.